Thank you for listening to the More Revolution podcast. In this session, Donald Miller will be sharing a message entitled, Love Turns the Light On. I need you guys in my, in my bedroom at 7.30 every morning, <laughs> getting me out of bed. <laughs> that, would be, that would be perfect. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Um, I, there are not a lot of people who are talking about the importance of purity. And, and in Portland, where I live, it's a pretty godless city. And I do a lot of work in L.A., which is a pretty godless place. And purity is just sort of laughed at, which is really incredible to me because what I do for a living is I tell stories. I mean, I write screenplays, I write movies, and I write books. And, and when you don't have, like, if you don't have purity in a story, I'm not talking about, like, sexual purity. They're like, like, if there aren't defined boundaries in the context of a, of a story, it gets really muddled. Like if you go to a movie and you're not exactly sure what the protagonist wants or who the enemy is, you just get really bored, right? It's totally true. And I mean, if you, next time you get bored in a movie, ask yourself a couple questions. What did the protagonist want? My guess is you won't know. And you're like, that's why this movie sucks. And then, like, who is the enemy? I, can't, I might have been the guy with the hat, but I can't. Yeah, it just... Uh, so when there's not like clear, clear stuff going on in a story, the story gets really muddled. And it's not just true for stories, it's true for life. I mean, when things just aren't clear, like when you clearly don't know what you want or what you stand for, life gets really muddled. And when you really don't know who the enemy is, life gets really muddled. Like when you can't tell who the bad guys are, life doesn't make very much sense, right? Or when you think the bad guys are the good guys, it's just all of that. It doesn't really work. And when I figured this out, I was having coffee with a friend, kind of a hipster guy, a guy who spends several hours picking an outfit that makes it look like he doesn't care. <laughs> he, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like that guy. <laughs> Nothing against loser hipsters, they're great. But... Um, <laughs> but, so I'm having coffee with my friend, and um, he kind of blah, 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 talking. He goes, well, you know, life is meaningless, and then he just keeps going. And, I've, and I used to hear that, that. You could put that on the state flag of Oregon, life is meaningless, and people would just kind of buy it. Because that's just kind of how people think, right? And, and that's fine. We've all heard that phrase a million times. But I'd been studying stories, and I realized, wait a second, life isn't actually meaningless. I mean, if, if you went to a movie and the movie was meaningless and you walked out of the movie, you would say, you know, that movie was meaningless. What you wouldn't say is, all movies are meaningless. That's just not true. Some movies are really great and exciting. And some movies are just kind of dumb, right? So when my friend said, life is meaningless, I did a very rude thing. I said, well, what if life is not meaningless? What if just your life is meaningless? <laughs> so we're not friends anymore, but it was... <laughs> uh, but it really was a, kind of a moment when I realized, well, wait a second, you can actually make life very meaningful. I mean, you can actually have the experience of a very meaningful life if you have some very healthy boundaries, if you're a protagonist that knows what they want, I learned all this because I wrote a book years ago that sold a lot of copies. and It was sort of a memoir. And some guys from 
um, in, the, in the movie making world called me and said, we'd like to make a movie out of your book, which is really about my life. And I couldn't figure out what they were doing because it was really a series of essays. The book wasn't like a narrative. It was just a series of essays. I don't know how you're going to make a movie out of this unless it's like a slideshow with like <laughs> subtitles, you know. And people, unless you're like in Germany at an art festival, they're not going to watch my movie. <laughs> so they come to town, like, give us a week. They come to town, we sit around in my living room, they say, well, the movie could kind of look like this. You know, it would be about you, uh, only you would work in a factory. And I'm like, okay, well, I never actually worked in a factory. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then, like, you could really, like, you could uh, work really hard and overcome the conflict to get this. I'm like, well, I, but I've never really... And they were just lying. I'm like, well, let's just make a movie. Let's just lie <laughs> about everything. And so I kind of raised my hand, and I said, well, what's wrong with, like, what's wrong with my real life? And they said, well, Don, you know, in screenwriting, you take certain liberties, and you sort of condense ideas, and you make things very clean so that an audience can understand. And the other screenwriter, Ben, interrupted Steve and said, what Steve is trying to say, Don, is that your real life is too boring to be turned into a movie. You know, we have to change some things. And so I actually thought to myself, well, what if I changed those things in my actual life? I mean, what if, like, the stuff that makes up a good story, what if I actually just did that and saw what happened? I, do you know what I mean? I mean, what if like you're sitting, what if you're sitting in the theater of your mind right now? What if you're sitting in the theater of your mind and you're watching your life happen out of your eyeballs and you're saying to yourself, this movie sucks. <laughs> or this movie is boring. What could you do? What could you do to change that? And it turns out there are actually a lot of things that you can do. Um, for instance, you can take enormous risks. You can. If you take enormous risks, meaning there's a possibility you could fail or look like an idiot, your life will get more exciting. Now, it may be a tragedy, and that's unfortunate, <laughs> but it will get more exciting. Uh, you have to take risks in stories, right? And the other thing is like, the protagonist has to want something that's extremely clear. If you don't want something that's clear, like if you wake up in the morning and you don't know what you want, you are in a boring story. I promise. If you wake up in the morning and you don't know what you want, you are in, a, you are in the theater of your mind watching a story that makes no sense. Or, if you, here's one, if you want something, but the thing that you want is really stupid, your story makes no sense. Well, I mean, it makes sense. People are just checking out. So, let me tell you a story. And I'll just make this up. Act one. Right? The movie comes on, and you see this guy, and he's a young guy, works at a grocery store, and he's flipping through the magazine at the grocery store on the right, and he sees an advertisement for the new Volvo station wagon. And he thinks, wow, I want that. Well, now we have the stuff of story because we have a protagonist that wants something. Then the other thing that has to happen in a story is there has to be conflict. The more conflict there is, the better the story is. Did you know that? The more painful your life is, the more meaningful your life becomes. Doesn't it suck? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. How many of you can testify? Seriously, I'm in an extreme amount of pain 
and my life is meaningful, and I hate it. But they kind of go hand in hand. So, so he, he wants the Volvo, and he realizes it's going to take me three years of working at this grocery store to get the down payment on this Volvo. And so the whole movie is him overcoming the conflict of like mopping vomit off of aisle four, right? And after three years, he goes to the dealership, he makes the down payment, and he drives off the car lot in the Volvo. Are you, are you crying at the end of this movie? Be, just shoot straight with me. Are you saying to yourself, man, if he can have the Volvo, maybe I can have the Volvo. No, that movie sucks. It really does. That is a crappy movie. You're literally, an hour and a half in, you're going, is, is this really what this movie is about? He wants a Volvo? This is... But we live these stories. These are the stories that we actually live. And then we just go, life is awful. No, life is fine. Your story is awful. Life is fine, I promise you. It's great. Look around at the mountains. I mean, there's a setting that God has made on this planet for you to tell unfreaking believable stories. You get up tomorrow morning and you watch sunrise and you tell me God did not design you to live an unbelievable life. Here's the problem. He gives you the pen. That's what sucks. <laughs> he says, you write it. Or let's write it together is really what he's saying. Let's write it together. I mean, God is a really good dad, right? So he's like the dad who puts out the big piece of butcher paper and he gets the crayons out and he just says, what do you want to draw? Like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to draw? I mean, if you could do anything, what would you want to do? But he's a good dad, so he doesn't mean like anything you want. You know what I mean? Like, my conversations with God are like this. Uh, they used to be like this. God, what would thy have me thou do with my life? And God's like, I'm not an Englishman. I'm not, I'm not Shakespeare. Please don't talk to me that way. Because you people are creeping me out. <laughs> God, what does thy thou want me to do with thy life hither to you? And God says to me, Don, what do you want to do? God, I only want to please you. I am your servant. What do you, what would you have? No, 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 Don, I'm serious. Like, what do you want to do? No, 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 God, I only want to, it's like I heard you the third time. What do you want to do? Like, I put in your heart the ability to desire. So what do you want? And I say to him, are you serious? And he's like, I am dead serious. What do you want to do? Let's do something together. God, I want to be a photographer at Mardi Gras. No. <laughs> you said anything. I meant, like, you know what I mean. Not that. No. That's immoral. And I know, it's not immoral, it's just pictures. I know what you're going to take pictures of. You can't fool me. No. <laughs> Please, no. I will beat you on the side of the head if you ask me again. No. So there's morality, right? There's morality. There are guidelines. There's discipline. There's wisdom. 
But psychologists talk about in raising healthy children, what you have to give the child is what's called shared agency. So you both have power. God gives you some power. He guides you. And, and there are times, don't get me wrong, when He has a specific will for you. They're usually kind of seasonal. Like, you know, I want you to do this. And you feel these things. I want you to go do this thing for me. They're seasonal. But I don't believe that God, for most people, has this like, specific thing that controls their entire life. Now, biblically, we do see some examples of God having a specific will for a specific person. So we need to create some caveats here. And I just want to make sure that you're not left out. Um, if, biblically, if your donkey talks to you, God has a specific plan for your life. Or, let's just broad categorize this. Any household pet, animal, God has a specific plan for your life. If you are a virgin and you are pregnant, (laughs) God has a specific plan for your life. You need to see a therapist and then maybe cool things will happen. But do you see what I'm saying? Like sometimes, and, and you know what? It's scary. I understand why people want God to have a specific plan for them and not want to take responsibility for the agency that He's given them to live something really beautiful. Because if you do it, if you do take the pen and write a story with God, it's extremely scary. It's so scary. Because what if you screw up? I mean, if you screw up and it's His plan, you can go, hey, it's His plan. Wasn't my plan. <laughs> and people will come up to me and they will say, I just believe that God has a specific plan for my life. And I don't believe that I can just take the pen and say I'm going to write something really beautiful based on what I know about God and in my relationship. He has a specific plan. And I say to them, well, what are you doing then? Like, What is His specific plan for you? Well, I'm waiting for, like, for what? What are you waiting for? And what are you doing while you wait? Well, I'm, I'm shopping at Bed Bath & Beyond right now. <laughs> so God's plan for you, His specific plan for you, is to, for you to wait and shop at Bed Bath & Beyond while you're waiting. Because God must be really stupid or a really bad storyteller, right? No. I think He has something for us I think it comes out of the desires of your heart. I think he has a wonderful story for you. I also think the best stories ever told, the ones that really matter, are about relationships. Stories about people. Stories about love. Stories about risk. Stories about sacrifice. Stories about dying for somebody that you love. Stories about turning the other cheek. Those are the stories that have you crying at the end of them. They're love stories. And when you talk about like a moral revolution, right? When you talk about that kind of stuff, you're really talking about how to tell a great story, right? Now we're going to see if I have a PowerPoint presentation. And we, we don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. So what makes a great story? I'll tell you what makes a great story. A protagonist that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Okay, one of you, only one of you, yell out your favorite movie. 
Toy Story 3. Fantastic movie. Toy Story 3 is about a group of toys who have been separated from their master, who they were created to play with and to serve. They are separated from from their master, and they are trying to get back to their master, and the whole time they're doubting whether or not their master really loves them. Is there a universal theme there in Toy Story 3? Like, do you identify? I'm watching a cartoon and I'm crying. I'm going, I love you, Jesus, so much. The children around me, I'm like, Daddy, something's wrong with that man. It's not good. I didn't need to see that with the kids. So, yeah, what else? Schmurmer? <laughs> the Lion King. Lion King was great. I, I, I've seen it a couple of times, saw it on Broadway, but I can't remember what it's about. What is it, Chris? Gladiator, right. So he's avenging, he wants something. He is avenging the murder of his family, right? And he has to overcome the conflict of the gladiating in order to do it. <laughs> Listen, every single story that is coming to your mind is about the exact same thing. Do you understand that? Every single story. You cannot call out a story that is not about a protagonist or a group of protagonists that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. And if you want to sit in the theater of your mind and live an incredible story, you need to get this really clear. You need to go home tonight and you go, what do I want? What's the conflict that is going to cost me to get what I want? Am I willing to sacrifice? Right? And am I willing to overcome that conflict in order to get it? So it's pretty clear for me. And we all live a bunch of stories. I've got a mentoring foundation back home. We want to mentor one million fatherless boys and shut down 15% of American prisons. Right? So, isn't that great? So I don't wake up in the morning and wonder if life is meaningless. I, I have, it's too busy, right? <laughs> My life is too painful to be meaningless right now. <laughs> There's too much going on, right? So what goes into a great love story? What goes into a really great love story? Well, i got to tell you, I'm not great at love stories. I mean, I'm 39. I'm not married. I am engaged. It's a wonderful gal in my life. Thanks. I've been engaged for 17 years, and I think we're going to get married this year. I think this is the... I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. I am. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. What makes up a great love story? Well, it's the same, really. It's a protagonist, you, who want to be loved, who want to find a soulmate, or if you already found your soulmate, want to really have a beautiful relationship, right? And what stands between you and that is a truckload of conflict. I mean, a truckload of stuff. And what happens when the protagonist cannot overcome the conflict is a tragedy. Yeah. So when the conflict wins, the story is a tragedy. When the protagonist wins, the story is a comedy. You see? Happy ending, sad ending, right? And we are in the midst of a story, of a love story. Every single one of us. We all, don't you want something in your heart? I mean, you're in, you're in a bunch of love stories. You're in a love story with God. You're in a love story with somebody of the opposite sex, right? You're in a love story that's a romantic love story. Sometimes when you get those two love stories confused, your life gets really wrecked. 
I mean, it could be the worst. Like if you, if you think that your future mate is going to do for you what God can do for you, it's going to be a really messy crucifixion and you're going to go to prison. Because like, you're like, she's like dead on the kitchen floor and you're like, oh, this, you weren't Jesus. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you were just a dude. <laughs> Turns out. And I stink at love stories. I stink. Can I tell you like my worst date story? Can I tell you why I'm 39 and I'm single? Okay, so, um, uh, so there was a, a wonderful uh, girl who I, I knew her, her, her brother-in-law. I had met her. She was really great. We wanted to spend some time together. She came to Portland. We're hanging out. Well, the night before she came to Portland, I ate like some ice cream right before bed, which is because I'm, I'm trying to be healthy. And, I, <laughs> and like at 2 in the morning, I'm feeling like this kind of stomach thing happening, and I'm like, I may be discovering that I'm lactose intolerant. Like this may be the moment where I realize that. I mean, she's not there, you know. And then, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, the night passes, everything is fine. She flies in, and we go on a hike, and we go on a hike to this place called Eagle Creek. So Eagle Creek. I don't know if you can see this. Eagle Creek. The hike looks like this. There's a cliff and a trail and a cliff. So that's it. So you can jump off the cliff and die, or you can climb the cliff and also die. <laughs> That's Eagle Creek. And it's like this for miles. And I'm like, we should go up Eagle Creek. There's a beautiful waterfall at the top, and we'll do this. So, it's great, we're getting to know each other. My dog, Lucy, who just, just did so much for my romantic life when I got a dog. And, and Lucy's kind of, seriously, if you're having trouble, just get a puppy. And so, you know, we're going on a hike, and we get up to Punchbowl Falls. We eat lunch there. Everything is going pretty good. Then we get to the top of Punchbowl, and we start back down this. And my stomach starts going, gurg, gurgle, gurgle. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, we're a long way from a bathroom. And you can't get off this trail. <laughs> Do you see where this is going? <laughs> and I'm like, this is coming out of me <laughs> at some point before we get to the restroom at the, at the trailhead. This is coming out. And so she notices that I'm sort of walking like this. <laughs> and she's like, Don, are you okay? And I had to just go, well, I got I to gotta tell you something. I... I'm a, I have to poop. <laughs> so I'm going to keep this as short as possible so that you will trust me for the rest of this talk. I make it about 45 minutes walking like this. We are 50 yards from the bathroom. And I ain't going any further. <laughs> And so I'm like, I'm literally like, the bathroom is where those doors are. And I'm like, Liz, I don't know how to tell you this. It's happening. <laughs> will, you, will you do me the favor and just take Lucy away from me? We're finally at a place where you can't, you know, you, there's not a cliff anymore. I'm going to like jump behind this tree 
and we're gonna, and then we will, you know, uh, we will end our relationship at that point. <laughs> I jump behind this tree. I drop trowel. Amazingly, none of it's in my clothing. And Lucy realizes I'm not with her anymore. It's a very powerful chocolate lab. Turns around, drags Liz back to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it's done, ladies. (laughs) So, what whatever your problem is, guys, I have you beat, and uh, (laughs) more power to you. Common themes of a love story are usually not not that love story. That one's tanked. We're not. We don't even talk. Common themes of a good love story are usually this, like, like man wants woman. I'm talking about all kinds of movies here. Man wants woman. Man falls in love with woman. Man pursues woman. Man earns woman's respect and admiration. Man gets to marry woman. Pretty good, right? Like, like you see these in a lot of... I mean, there are all kinds of variations on... But this is sort of like the fantasy you know, kind of love story. So you see them, right? So you've got, you've got male. Anybody like that one? Yep. Uh, the vampire one, Twilight. I never saw A Walk to Remember, but I put it up there. Good. Nicholas Sparks. No, the notebook would fit up there, right? I mean, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, uh, Titanic, walked out, bored to death. Uh, uh, Leap Year, I, I, I think I saw a, a lot of that one. That one, that one was pretty good. So, but this, these are the kinds of themes. So where are these themes coming from? I mean, where's the theme of like, man sees woman? Man goes, and you know, it, it usually happens this way, not always, but more frequently than not, percentage-wise, what happens is the guy sees the woman, has these really strong feelings for her. The woman kind of looks at this guy who's oogling her and is just like, who are you? And why are you looking at me like I'm a cheesecake? <laughs> right? Like what? Because she needs, she usually needs to know a little more about him in order to like give her heart away. He needs nothing else. He needs eyelashes and uh, and tight jeans. That's what he needs. And but, and so she's and so there's this confusion. And now he has to like earn. He has to do something. He has to earn kind of her respect and admiration. And this is where most of us just make complete idiots of ourselves over for the first ten years of our dating careers, or at least that's my life. And and that's kind of how the story works. And you know, that's really a little bit of it. It's, it's, it's by design. I mean, that's the way God actually designed us. God made men and women very different for a reason. Do you know why? So He could increase conflict. I'm not kidding. I'm not making that up. You were designed differently so that there would be an, a, a harder time for you to communicate your needs with each other. Because he wants to make you work for it. Because when you work for something, you value it. When you do not work for something, you do not value it. Does that make sense? So in your marriage, if you think it's supposed to be easy, you are not talking to God very much about what marriage looks like. He wants it to be extremely difficult. He wants it to be hard. And he wants men 
who have to work their butts off to earn the favor of a woman. Did you know that? He designed it that way. And when women, I'm just going to say this, when women decrease the conflict that a man has to go through in order to earn her favor, have the privilege of spending time with her, she also decreases his, his value in, her value in his perception. Do you understand how that works? So if you go, hey, you don't have to get a job, right, <laughs> to spend time with me, he just kind of goes, oh, no, this is easy, this is great, right? But when you're just like, no, I really like you, I really want to spend time with you, but, uh, but you're a Yahoo and a freak, so you need to cut your hair and you need to get a job. And I would love to spend time with you. Women, you have a lot of power, actually, to shape your own. Now, your value in God's eyes is infinite. Your value in a person's eyes is, is, is very sad and affected by sin nature, and it becomes really conditional, it becomes really messed up. And one of the ways that women can increase their perceived value with men is to just not give them what they want very easily. They need to have character. They need to be respectful. They need to be kind. They need to have a work ethic. All that kind of stuff. God actually started this from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. I, I, I brought, my, I brought my, my, my porn drawings for you. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. <laughs> it's just... How did that get on my hard drive? <laughs> I am so embarrassed. <laughs> so God, here's a cool love story. By the way, the only love story not tainted by sin nature is this one. I mean, this is the, the romantic love story, man-woman love story, is this one. And you know how it works? Here's how it works. God creates Adam, right? He makes him out of dirt. I'm writing a book now called The Diary of God, and it's God's diary from the creation of the angels to the fall of man. So in my book, it's all fiction. I mean, it's really happened, but I just sort of make things up. God reaches, he, God reaches down into the earth, and he grabs some soil, and he just breathes like a little bit of humid air in the soil. And he just kneels down, and he hunches over it for nine months as Adam is created in the womb of his hand. And he feels his bones moving into his own hands, right? And then the angels all come around Adam at Adam's birth, and he releases Adam, and the angels freak out because of Adam's incredible beauty and power because Adam is so much stronger and such an amazing creature more than they are, and they freak out, right? So something, I don't know, that's not what happened, but something really amazing like that happened. So God creates... <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> right? But I want us to understand like something really beautiful like that happened. So Adam gets created, okay? And then God and Adam are really good friends. God and Adam are close. God and Adam talk and walk every day. And yet the Bible says God saw Adam and he was incomplete. You say, wait a second. He had God. He did have God. And he was also incomplete. In other words, I'm just going to like blow this. I'm going to just like drop this bomb on you. God does not complete you. He does not. God completes the God part of you. Burritos complete the burrito part of you. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? It's sort of obvious. 
And when people say, hey, God completes you, they're not heretics. They're saying like the ultimate desire that you have is God. But what I'm saying is, if you think a woman is going to complete you, uh, that God part of you, you she, you're gonna, she's going to have a hard life, right? She's just going to complete the woman part of you, which is an awesome part of you, but it's just the woman part of you. So, so, God, so he is incomplete, even though he has this incredibly wonderful relationship with God. God sees him, and he says, Adam is incomplete. He's missing a helpmate. He's missing a companion. Now, women don't exist. So, in Adam's Facebook profile, it's just male. There's, just no, there's no female, it's just male, right? And he's by himself. And he's lonely. So what does God do? What does God do? Anybody? No. No, He does not make Eve. Read it. You know what He said? I mean, immediately Moses, immediately in the text, He says this, God saw Adam, and he was lonely, and he could not find a helpmate suitable. So God told Adam to name the animals. That sucks. Like, didn't you just say he was lonely? Right? You just say, I mean, you just, you just said he was lonely, and now he's going to name the animals. Now, we commonly think of like naming the animals as being this sort of cartoon thing. I found this. Uh, that's not the one. I found, I found this. You're a dodo bird, and you're a horse. Yeah, not at all what was really happening. What was really happening, I pooped on that, and then... What was really happening was um, (laughs) Adam was super lonely. He couldn't find a helpmate suitable. God said, name the animals. Now, I have a friend named Kevin Kelly. Kevin, have have you ever heard of Wired Magazine? So Kevin started Wired Magazine. He's a genius guy. And he now has a project where he is attempting to name all the unnamed species on the planet. So he's, he's got millions of dollars in grants from governments all over the world. Hundreds of scientists are working with him. And if a scientist finds an unnamed species, they can actually name it. You know how many unnamed species there are on the planet right now? 20 million. Now, 20 million unnamed species. So Adam was not given a weekend project. This, this took a long time. Now, my friend John Silhammer, who's an Old Testament scholar I greatly respect, he said there's a possibility that Adam was naming sort of categorically, uh, the sort of the categories of the species, whatever it was. This is Darwin on the Galapagos Islands. This is a man keeping detailed journals. John Muir, right? Up in Yosemite. I mean, this is a man keeping detailed journals. Lewis and Clark crossing the continent, writing down the names of the species, figuring it all out. At the very least, 10 years to what I think was probably more than 100 years of loneliness, of incompleteness, of not able to find a helpmate suitable. Man, you thought your life was hard. Like, you know, you haven't had a day, you haven't had, you've never had a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? 
hundred years. And it's not even like there are women. It's not like, it's not like he, he can't figure out how to talk to them. Right? Like he's not going to the club, you know, and oh, I'm just so nervous. They don't even exist. They're not there. And he can't find a helpmate. And so he's interacting with these animals. And, like, and he's like, ah, you know, the monkey's kind of fun for a weekend to go and throw a coconut around. But, you know, just like, this, you know, we're sitting there talking. And he's shoving a banana in his eye. And I'm like, this is not, this is not working out. <laughs> and the cat, right? You can't even get eye contact. If you get eye contact from a cat, you're just like, I feel so validated as a human being. It's not, you know, it's not working. And this is, this is orchestrated by God. So listen to me really closely. If you are lonely, there is a very, very, very good possibility you are exactly where God wants you to be. Do you understand that? If you are lonely, you may be experiencing exactly what God wants you to experience. And if you cheat loneliness by hooking up or dating the wrong person, you are cheating a really good story. Because this story gets good. Like you're opting out. You've got to suffer, man. You have to suffer to make the story good. You have to do it. And if you cheat the suffering, your story's not going to be as good. It's just not. So finally, he names the animals, right? God puts Adam to sleep. And He pulls from Adam a rib. And He fashions Eve, the most beautiful, amazing, and the last of all of creation. The pinnacle of His artistic ability is the woman. Pretty cool, right? Guys, do you agree with that? The better than a mountain better than a sunrise, better than a sunset, is a woman. Sadly, Satan breathes into the ears of the women around us and tells them they're the worst. They're the best. Right? And he breathes and he, and he creates this rib. Like from this rib, he creates this perfect companion. Why in the world would God put Adam through that kind of pain? I'll tell you why. Because if he made him hurt, if he made Adam feel the pain, he would value her. He would be like, oh my gosh, it's been hurting for so long. And she's so awesome. This is a theme, by the way, in movies. They have to work for her. Remember this one? Did you see the notebook? My fiance made me watch this. I made a... I like conflict. I, like, I don't like doing things just like normal because I know that the great stories involve conflict. So she, I knew I had to watch this. Oh, it was a bet. Can I tell you? Try this, guys. She said, um, I'll watch the notebook. Or I, I, she said, if you watch the notebook, I'll watch something that you want me to watch. I said, really? She said, yes. I said, do you promise? She said, I promise. And I said, Okay. I'll watch The Notebook if you watch Ken Burns' documentary on baseball. And um, I'm a huge Ken Burns fan. He's an amazing filmmaker. And she goes, 
it's, so it's like a documentary about baseball? I go, yeah. It's a simple documentary kind of about the history of baseball. And I really like it. And she said, okay, I'll do it. I said, you promise. You have promised me. I will watch The Notebook. You watch Ken Burns' documentary about baseball. She's like, yes, Don, I promise. I said, promise again. She said, I promise. I go, great. It's 18 hours long. <laughs> she still hasn't. She has not kept her promise. So I make a fort out of all the blankets in my house, and we watch the notebook inside of, our, of this fort, right? I still fell asleep, but it was a, it was a good effort. So it's the story of Ali and Noah. They can't be together. There has to be conflict. There has to be something that separates them. So what does Noah do? Noah builds, he restores a house for Ali. He works. He names the animals. Ladies, you need, I'm not saying to be controlling, but you need a man who's willing to work. And work involves not sleeping around. And I know, I know that stinks. And I, but Don, they're all sleeping around. No, they're not. They're not all sleeping around. The guys you're interested in are sleeping around because you're interested in the wrong guys. So you just need to deal with that. You need to stop being interested in those guys and surround yourself. Because they're not, I have every, pretty much every good friend that I have in Portland is an extremely honorable man. They're everywhere. And so, and there, and especially in a place like this, you just got to. And then here's the other thing: have faith, trust God, and you, and you have to name the animals too in your life, right? You've got to do this too. Yeah, he builds a house for her. it's part of the part of the theme. So when Adam sees Eve, the very first bit of Hebrew parallelism is spoken in the Bible. Hebrew parallelism. Um, ancient Hebrew historical texts kind of work like this. It's narrative, 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 and then they break into poetry. So they don't write history books the way we write history books today. They acknowledge that God made the right brain, the left brain, the amygdala. There's an emotion center, and some truth can't be, get, can't be gotten to with just like bullet points. There's some truth that's just very poetic and very deep and very meaningful. And this is all throughout the ancient Hebrew text. And the very first time they actually see this in the Scriptures is when Eve comes on the scene. So whenever a text repeats itself, it's parallelism. So Hebrew poetry would work like, here we all are together gathered in this theater enjoying one another's company listening to a lecture. So it's just sort of these same ideas. So when you get to the Psalms, like, why is Deuter repeating himself? Like, it's because it's an ancient form of Hebrew poetry. And so the very first time that happens in the Hebrew text is Eve, because Adam says this. He sees her and he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like he wakes up and he goes, you're like me. How much more does that mean after 100 years of hanging out with apes? I mean, it's really beautiful, isn't it? You're like me. You're like me. Haven't you, have you ever fallen in love and you felt that way with the person that you're sitting across from and you're just like, you're like me. We both, we both like Radiohead. You're like me. <laughs> right? Much lesser version of, of what Adam was probably feeling. But it feels good. Like we, you're like me. We have so much in common. So this is the ultimate. But it wouldn't have happened unless he would have had to have gone through the pain. I remember um, years ago we were, we were hiking in... Peru, and we, we hiked uh, to this place, Machu Picchu, 
But we, had, we took four days to get there. And on the left, you can't see it very well, but that is um, called Dead Woman's Pass. And Dead Woman's Pass is about between fourteen and 15,000 feet. I'd never done any kind of climbing like this, but we climbed from really low up over Dead Woman's Pass. And we get to this place four days on the trail. We get to this place, and our guide, Carlos, says, Senors, we could take the trail that goes down the river, and we could be at Machu Picchu in four hours. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go over Dead Woman's Pass. And we were so, this is up near Dead Woman's Pass. We were so far beneath that peak, it was climbing up into the clouds. And I was like, why? You just said, you just said it was four hours. <laughs> you know? Like, do they have a restaurant? Can you get a snow cone? <laughs> and he said, the Inca would make people take the long route to Machu Picchu over the mountain passes. These enormous steps, like two feet each, that you're climbing for days and days and days. It would make them take the long route because they wanted them to appreciate the city when they got there. That is just a God-given, absolute truth about your life. If you take the easy way out, you will not value it as much. So, Scientific American just released an article not very long ago that talks about the more sexual partners that you have, the less that you can actually enjoy sex on an emotional level. It's kind of like, a, 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 they called it a garden hose that you keep just poking nail holes in. Less pressure can finally get to the end. Well, the reason is, people just aren't willing to suffer anymore. I mean, they're just not willing to sit there and go, I'm just going to feel this feeling until I have the right person with which to express this. You have to save up the suffering for the beautiful story. You just have to do it. That's where the beautiful love story comes in. Guys, we have to name the animals. We have to get jobs. We have to become men of character. We have to learn to tell the truth. It's a huge one. Men, learn to tell the truth. I mean, when Paige and I got together, we had to talk about my past. I said, look, here's the deal. I am never, ever, ever going to lie to you. If there's anything that you don't want to know, don't ask me. I'm going to tell you. I mean, so she asked me, did you kind of like have an inkling for that girl while we were dating? Yeah. Yeah, I did. You want to pray about it? You want to, like, I will not lie. We're going to just deal with the nitty gritty of, you need to be a person of character. You need to have character. You need to have a work ethic. We need to be able to work. You need to be honest. You need to not lead girls on. That was my big sin when I was dating. I, would, I, I was always extremely faithful. Never cheated, never did any of that. But I always had like this safety net of like two or three girls. Like, when this doesn't work, I'll go there. Until Paige sat me down and said, you know you can't do that, right? And I'm like, why not? Right? We need to deal with our character. We need, to, we need to name the animals and do the work and prepare. Because here's what marriage, your beautiful love story is actually going to be this. We think it's like winning the lottery. It is not. Getting married is not like winning the lottery. Getting married is like climbing a mountain. Getting married is not like winning... Can we just say that together? Getting married is not like winning the lottery. Getting married is like climbing a mountain. So don't get this idea in your head that everything's going to be awesome when you find that person. No. What you're finding is a person with which to do a very, very difficult task called life. So if in our lives as single people, every night we eat a gallon of ice cream, 
And then we come to the bottom of the mountain and we find the one that we love. And eight steps in, you're puking. (laughs) You have not trained for this difficult task. And training involves being able to control ourselves and say no. And You know what you get when you're single that 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 I think we just kind of throw away? You get to have faith. You get to trust God during the incredibly painful and difficult time. You get to do that. It's your offering that you get to bring God. Ladies, you get to go home and cry yourself to sleep at night in your pillow for Jesus. (laughs) You get to turn Him down and say, you know, I'm just not going to hook up with this dude. And what are you thinking when you're hooking up anyway, right? Because I know how it works. Like, if you, if you hook up enough guys, one of them will finally, like, fall for you, right? No. No, that's not how it works. Guys don't marry the girls they hook up with. I'm just going to let that out of the bag. Can I just say that? Guys do not marry the girl that they hook up with. They don't. They marry the girl that won't hook up with them. Yeah, but Don, if I don't hook up with them, they won't like me. Well, good. You just got it over quicker and you didn't have to get like spit all over you. (laughs) Right? You're going to have to weed it out. In fact, studies show, Scientific American, that girls will hook up with guys that they esteem much more highly. Like if they're really famous or really tough or have a lot of money or really powerful, they're much more likely to hook up with them. The exact opposite is true for men. Men will only hook up with girls that they esteem very lowly. Did you know that? A man will hook up in a one-night stand with a woman that he does not see as attractive as a woman he would date. So if you're in a one-night stand hooking up with a guy, I promise you, it's not a compliment, it's an insult. That's just how the brain works. He is insulting you while he's doing that. And also, he's stealing a great story. When you had the chance to like, say no to this guy, right? What an awesome gift you'll give your husband. Guys were coming on to me like crazy. They drove me mad. But you were a gentleman. You know? That's, a, that's just a really great story. You really want that in your story. So let's stop like the hooking up thing. But Don, this is difficult. There's so much resistance. You know what? Resistance creates lift. <laughs> right? Resistance is our friend. It's not our enemy. Resistance is our friend. If you just obey the principles that God has, you get to fly. You can't fly without resistance. Resistance is good, folks. Conflict is awesome. If there's no conflict, there's no good story. Noah builds a house for hours. Make Deuter work for you. Right? So tonight, I'm, I'm talking to guys and girls little leaning toward the girls. Tomorrow I'm going to talk little leaning to the guys. Okay? So when you make him work for you, you weed out the losers. Isn't that awesome? You, you, get to weed out, you get to weed out the ones who you really don't want in your life anyway. And you know, when girls are younger, they tend to be drawn, um, romantically, they tend to be drawn toward bad guys. So this is just a, just a biochemical fact. They're, they're drawn toward bad guys. Because they're drawn toward guys who they perceive as having a lot of strength. So these guys are strong and they're bucking the system, right? They're the bad guys. And then they have this crazy fantasy that they're going to be able to change them into like a good guy. No. You're not going to, 
You're not going to change them into a good guy. But ladies, here's what happens as you get older. You're going to hit 26, 27. You're going to hooked up with all these guys. It's going to, and it's, there are going to be a lot of pain because you thought you could change them and you couldn't. And they're going to lead you on. And they're bad guys, so they're lying to you all the time anyway. right? So you will be attracted to them and you need to like shelve that. You need to just go, you know, I just can't, I just not, I'm not going to fall for that one. Because in a few years, your desire, your attraction is actually going to begin to change. Did you know that? And you're going to be drawn toward guys who can create security, emotional security, guys who have character, and guys who are monogamous. And if you've got the track record of the girl who hooked up with the bad guys, guess what the good guy is not really looking for? You. He's not looking for you. He wants a mom for his kids. Right? He wants somebody emotionally dependable. Not bringing a bunch of baggage into this relationship. That, I mean, if a guy wants to minister to the world and he can't minister to the world because he's got to turn around and minister to you, it's not going to be very fun for him. So we need to like restore that in ourselves, ladies. We need to get some character and we need to actually say, I'm not going to choose some of these bad guys. You have something very wise and beautiful inside you and it's speaking to you. And I want you to just be very quiet. It's your eggs. Listen, let's just be, <laughs> you have eggs inside you that can make babies with the proper fertilization. Tell me when you've heard this, you know. <laughs> so you, you may be really attracted to the dude who looks like a vampire, who works at Starbucks uh, and is high. Um, I assure you, your eggs do not find that young man attractive at all. Because your eggs want to be people, and they want to eat food. <laughs> so ladies, you need to like put an ear down by your belly and go, Eggs, what do you think of that guy? The guy who just did the backflip off the diving board while high eating a bag of Cheetos. What is, what, is that? Because he's kind of cute, and your eggs will go, Mommy, <laughs> mommy, are you on crack? <laughs> mommy, that guy's a loser, mommy. Hey, kid, and like I know we're all Christians and we're all big on grace. It's okay to call a guy a loser if he's a loser. There's nothing like ungracious about saying the truth. That dude's a loser. He needs to get a job. It's not like, a, it's not like a, a mean thing to say. It's just the truth. And your eggs are going to need a dude who can provide, who has character, who can hold you while you're crying for no reason. And not... You, but I'm not kidding. You need that guy, right? And you need at least for him to put you right here so that you don't see him when he rolls his eyes. What in God's name are you crying about now? You, you don't need that. You need the tender, you need, but you also don't need the weak, wimpy guy. You need the guy who when somebody comes after the kids, will kill them. You need that guy. So you need the tender guy with the nunchucks. You need that guy. <laughs> right? So that's the guy. That's the guy that you want. That's what the eggs need. And you say, Don, 
That guy doesn't exist. No, he re- I'm serious. Listen to me. He does. I know tons of these guys. They do exist. You're just not patient. You're just not patient. And you're going to have to wait it out. And you're going to have to become even more beautiful. And you're going to have to invest in your own beauty. And you're going to have to say, no, I'm going to wait. Because why? I want the great love story. I, and what happens when the protagonist is overcome by the conflict? Tragedy. Tra- and probably almost everybody in this room, myself included, has lived through a romantic tragedy. Haven't you? Doesn't it suck? Isn't it heartbreaking? I mean, sex is not like this thing where you just do it and walk away, right? Sex is this thing where like two pieces of cardboard are glued together and now you're trying to peel them apart. And you, now you got that person on, and you're just kind of... And nothing against that person, but it's just like, you know, I just don't want... And you got stuff you got to work through and you got to... It, it's not the cleanest, most beautiful love story. Ladies, listen to what your eggs need, right? And use your executive brain. Your executive brain is the one... Your, your amygdala, the emotional center, is the one that wants the fourth bowl of ice cream. <laughs> the executive brain is the one that says, really? Don't do that. <laughs> and so ladies, like when you're drawn to that guy... You're, you need to kind of tap back into the executive brain and go, you know, I think I'm going to wait this out. And what you need to do is you need to run home and you need to cry into your pillow. Because someday, I'm not kidding, someday you're going to sit with your husband and you're going to say, you know what I did for you? I ran home and I cried into my pillow. And I, and I hope to God that you really existed. I mean, he's just going to go, are you serious? <laughs> and you're going to go, yeah. I swear to you, he will fall at your feet. So just to give it to him. See, Don, what if it never happens? That's the risk. I'm not kidding. That's the risk. It might not. It might not. But your chances are greatly increased if you give it a try. I mean, with, I mean, it's not a guarantee. This is not us doing deal-making with God. If I run home and cry in my pillow, then I will have the beautiful love story. No. You're not going to manipulate God. But He does love you. And He does honor the faithful. You know? So, let's do it. So, here's what I want you to do, ladies. <laughs> Listen to what they're saying. Mommy, no. Mommy, I love that. Mommy, no. Mommy. He's a vampire, Mommy. (laughs) I want you, every girl in this room, (laughs) I want you, ladies, I'm not kidding. In your journals tonight, in your Hello Kitty journal with your Hello Kitty light-up pen. <laughs> hey, and if you're here as a family, Dad, if you're here with your daughter, this is gonna, you're going to have a blast. Go get yogurt and say, hey, let's like, just for the heck of it, let's list what your eggs need. We'll list what you need later. 
let's list what your eggs need, right? I need a man with character. I need a man with a good work ethic. I need a man who tells the truth. I need a man who can climb a mountain because climbing, mountain, climbing mountains is very difficult. And following Jesus is not like winning the lottery. Following Jesus is like climbing a mountain. It's hard and very, very few people make it to the top. I mean, they just trail. It's, it's just it's difficult. I mean, you guys know. You're, you live in this area. It's tough. You need strength. You need dependability. You need financial responsibility. You need monogamy. Huge. He, his romantic interest needs to be laser focused on you. And that's it. It's not that he's not going to look at other girls every once in a while, or he's not going to, you know, but that role, he needs the, the character to just go, because here's what's happening. Here's what I had to deal with in the sin of my own life. I validated myself with women. Now, I wasn't like, I wasn't the guy sleeping around. I've never kissed a girl unless I would die for her. That was my rule from the beginning. Like, if I kiss you, I'll die for you. I'm not kidding. It was like that was the rule from early on. I wanted the great story. But what I would do is I would just kind of try to make sure that that girl would get a crush on me. And I, w- I wasn't going to date her. I mean, literally, at one point, I'm three years in to a relationship when she finally said, Don, like, I don't want to bring up like the M word. Like, are we ever going to get like married? Is that a part of this? And I was like, oh, you have completely misunderstood my intentions these three years. <laughs> I know. I, I know. I'm hard enough on myself. You don't have to join my own chorus of self-hatred. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it just, and it didn't work, and there's just a lot, of, a lot of hurt stuff goes on with that. Like you just, and, and this is going to weed them out, ladies. There are very few. But listen to me. Here's the cool thing about weeding the dudes out. When you start weeding guys out, I promise you, you will become more attractive to men. Try it. When you start weeding out the losers, you will become so much more attractive to men. Because they're going, man, she must be something. She must be, I mean, she must be really special. There's something going on there because she doesn't just like flirt with everybody, right? She's weeding the dudes out. And, I, I, and, and what's going to happen is you'll have less of a pool to work with, but the little pool that's left will want you. So make them come after you. All right, your list is your filter, Right? So you do not want to date guys who don't care about your eggs. (laughs) Because that's ultimately where we're going. And again, what's going to happen is when you start filtering these guys out, is you're going to suffer. It's going to look like this. (laughs) You thought I was going to tell you a really Nicholas Sparks style love story, didn't I? Ladies, this is your near future. (laughs) You want to do it though. You want to do the pain. You want to do the pain. Because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a conversation in your future. And if you are 15 years old to whatever, 25, 27, you're single, you're very close to a very incredible scene in your movie. It's going to happen. 
And it, I just got engaged. It just happened in mine. Um, where you're basically going to have to disclose your sexual history to your partner. A lot of girls just lie. But you do not want to start a relationship with lies. You just don't. I mean, I've been in one of those. It's an absolute nightmare. I mean, if you, I mean, I just talked to a gal on the phone the other day. Bethany, she's beautiful, beautiful girl. She got into this hookup thing where she was really attracted to all these rock stars. She got into this hookup thing. She finds the love of her life. They have this exchange of here's my history. She holds a lot of it back, puts some of the dates back further. He kind of finds out that what she said wasn't true. They go into about a year of dark pain where nothing she can say is believed by him. He doesn't know what's up and what's down. They take the ring off the finger and it's over. I mean, if you, can, if you can't have trust in the relationship, you can't have a relationship. So you will have to have a very honest conversation with your mate. And it's kind of like, you know, writing it all down. On, I mean, don't do this. But it's kind of writing it all down on a piece of paper, putting it in an envelope, and then you guys get to exchange the envelope. This is the gift, the dream come true, or the nightmare that you're about to hand the person who is madly in love with you. And he is madly in love with you. You never thought you were going to get this. You never thought anybody would finally see how beautiful you suspected maybe you were. But God put him on the planet. And he's, and he's just... And so what happens, the truth is, he, you know, she opened mine and mine, was, mine had a mistake. And it was very, very hard. Right? I open hers and there's stuff in there that's just very, very hard. And I've heard stories, you know, as I talk to my friends about these moments. And the best way to do this, Chris may, Chris may have a lot more wisdom on this, but what I've heard, the best way to do this is you, you kind of sit down, you get it all on the table with no lies, you don't get into details. Don't, guys are visual ladies. Do not give him details. Don't do it. But you just go, hey, here's how many... Here's who they were. Here's when it was. Here's the situation. And then you basically need to give him a chance to walk away and bawl his eyes out. Because it's, it's just going to hurt him. I mean, it, it, because he loves you. It's not because he thinks you're a horrible person. He just loves you and he feels like you belong to him. He's like, well, she belongs to me. I don't want any of these guys, you know, knowing her. Like, it's just, oh, it's so. It's just so hard, right? And so you don't want to hand them like something that's just going to... You just don't want to do that to your husband. And I know to you it didn't mean anything. Like to you it's like, man, that just means... I don't even remember. You know what I mean? But to him it's like, oh, this one, this one stings. And hey, every, probably everybody in this room, unless you're really young, you've got to hand something hard. And pray for grace. And grace is hard. See, I think the, the girl fantasy is if he loves me, he'll forgive me. That's like kind of like, what if, I, what if I went up to you ladies and I said, you know what? She loves me, she'll forgive me. And then I just punch you in the face. <laughs> He's like, do you love me? You're kind of like, well, come a little, a little bit. Hold on. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just not, it's not the best way to start a relationship, right? You just end up with a lot of stuff. So I'm going to share something with you that a lot of guys... Wouldn't, um, wouldn't share.
when he, when he opens the top secret envelope. Now, we're going to talk to the guys tomorrow. So ladies, please, please, please don't think that I'm grilling you right now. We're going to talk to the guys tomorrow. And if I'm being very nice to you, I will not be nice to them tomorrow. Here's what a guy feels. Here's what a guy feels. How does my body compare to their bodies? I mean, literally, that will come into his head. Jeez, how does my body compare to that guy's body? Literally, like, I'm going to be crude here. Like, is he bigger than me? That will, I swear to you, it will enter every single man's head. It's a stupid thing, I know, but it's going to happen. And when he does that, he's going to go, he's going to feel a little invalidated and a little insecure. And there are extremely few men who have the confidence to not care. And, what, and that, you say, well, how does that affect me? Well, when he feels invalidated, he's actually going to get a little bit angry at you. Because who, who else is he going to take it out on? And he's going to hide that because he's a gentleman. And what he's going to do is he's going to go, babe, you're just so great. He's going to go and he's just going to beat the hell out of his pillow. I mean, I mean really, he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to hurt you. So he's not doing that. But you've put this thing in him that just gives him... And ladies, are you attracted to like really insecure men who aren't confident? Like, are you just going, oh, I love that guy. That guy is so cute. <laughs> no. You're like a confident, strong man. So what you're doing, the, the psychological term is you're emasculating him. You're making him a little bit less of a man. And you, you will actually, if he really struggles with it, you'll find it very hard to deal with. Now, d- guys are different. Some guys can forgive a, a, a spouse's past pretty easily, pretty quickly. I, I found very few guys who can do that, but there are some. And I've, I have one friend who is madly in love with his wife. They have a great relationship, and she has been with 500 men. I mean, and, and so those guys are out there, and, and I, this is one of my closest friends. I love this man to death. I love her to death. They have a great relationship. And, uh, but it was extremely hard. At one point in their marriage, in order to heal their marriage, they could not have sex with each other for one year. Because they, you, it, it just creates pain. And, and there are very few men who are going to go, I'm willing to work through this, this amount of pain. So you, you kind of don't want those scenes in your... When I say kind of, I mean you don't want those scenes <laughs> in your story. So we're just going to get real about what a dude goes through, right? What if they are better in bed than me? Ugh. Ugh. Oh. I don't I just don't have the physical body to deal with that question. You know what I mean? Like I I'm just going I don't know if I want to and then there's and and there's these really uncomfortable moments in some marriages where it's just like I wonder if she's done this before. I mean, can you imagine as a husband going, I wonder if she's done like this position before and with who and that would, that would sort of ruin the moment. Right? You don't want that. Let's keep those scenes out of your story. Let's keep, and this is another reason that it, 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 probably a lot of people in this room, if not most of us, have messed this up. You need to come back and you need to restore this and you need to start over. It will mean so, so much to your husband to say, I heard what it was going to do to you and I stopped because I love you. You need to get that into your story. You need to get that scene into your love story. It will mean the world to your husband. And it will go so far. And Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm not making you feel bad. I'm telling you how bad he's going to feel. Your husband is not perfect. You will trigger his insecurities. 
And we, we just don't want to trigger his insecurities. We want him to be strong. We want him to, be, to feel like more of a man. What if they have more money than I do? Right? And you're kind of going, I don't care. I'm not in love with his money. It doesn't matter. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking these things. These things are really driving him crazy. If they thought you were a hookup girl, why am I seeing you as a potential wife? Because they're different. So when, when if he's going, this is the most beautiful woman in the world. She's my angel. And then you kind of have to reveal, well, I was sort of the hookup girl for a while. He's kind of going, oh, well, I, okay, let me, and he will, if he loves you, he will wrestle through it. He will reframe you in his mind. And he will rebuild that love story. But just don't put him through it. Just don't, don't, put him, don't make him have to jump through that hurdle too. I really resent you for making me feel this way. A lot of men, hopefully, they won't tell their girlfriend or their fiance this, but he'll definitely feel it. He'll definitely be like, Dad, come it. Why are you? You just made me feel like garbage. I'm sorry for being so heavy, you guys. When I see you having sex with them in my mind, I think less of you. Your spouse will visualize you having sex with your other partners. It will happen. Guys are visual. Girls are not as visual as guys. Guys are extremely visual. This is why don't give details. Let me just don't. You need to give the facts because he has a right to know about your character as a human being, but just don't give him details. But he will visualize that. So the next time you're laying in bed with a dude, just know your husband will be watching this. And in his mind, it won't be as goofy and clumsy as it is right now. It's going to be awesome in his mind, and he's going to suck at it. So don't, this is not something you want him comparing himself to. How can I trust you not to have the wrong kind of sex, sex outside of marriage, after we are married? Like, were you able to say no? Were you able to resist the dudes? Okay, this is not like a biblical thing. This is not like me trying to make you feel it. What I'm doing right here is I'm giving you the honest truth about the way a guy's mind actually works. This is what they're going to be put through in your beautiful love story. This is me and my friend Joe. We're climbing Mount Hood. A love story is like climbing a mountain. It's very, very hard. And when you're climbing a mountain, you can't bring a lot of gear. You can't bring a lot of baggage. And then I tried to climb Mount Hood. We got, we got snowed out because of the weather. And, um, you know, you're wearing these, you guys have done this, you're wearing these like really uncomfortable boots that you can't move your ankles in. And then you got these crampons, so you got steel. And I remember at one point saying to myself, and then out loud, I hate climbing mountains. <laughs> but you don't climb mountains because they're fun. You climb mountains in order to get to the top. Because it's just so beautiful up there above the clouds, right? And your love story is going to take an enormous amount of sacrifice. It's going to take, it is not, ladies, it is not like winning the lottery. It's more like climbing a mountain. You will have as beautiful of a love story as you want. And what you have to invest in that love story is suffering. That's what you have to invest. The ability to just go, I'm just not going to give in to this. I'm going to stay home. Or I'm not going to go out with him. Or girls, ladies, I'm going to break up with him tonight. 
like it's over tonight. If, if you're in a relationship and there's sex going on, you guys don't just need to like stop. You need to break up and you need to separate and you need to talk to some adults and say what you've done and then you need to figure it out from there. Like just don't, don't say we're going to stop. End it. Suffer for your spouse because that person may or may not be your spouse. And if they are your spouse, how incredible is it in their story that you go, you know what, I know how much you love me and you broke up with me. And we were able to get back together and restore this. It's, gonna, it's just going to restore that love story. It's going to be really awesome. Every great story encounters an enormous amount of resistance. I mean, this is one of my favorite stories is the, the civil rights movement, right? And I'm going to use some audio on the next clip, so we just want to make sure that that's queued up. Uh, the civil rights movement. You know when Jesus says, like, I've come to bring a sword, right? So it's this violent thing. But then he also says, I'm the prince of peace. How do you reconcile those? You know, I'm the prince of peace. <laughs> you're just like, well, you're not being very peaceful. <laughs> but what he's saying is, um, he's saying, I'm the prince of peace. I am going to create peace in the world. And when I do that, it's going to cause a lot of tension. In other words, it's like Martin Luther King crossing the bridge in Selma, Alabama during the civil rights movement. I will not fight you, but I will keep moving forward. I will not fight you, but I will not stop moving forward. I will not fight you, but I will not. And so in, in society, this is our attitude in our moral revolution. Our attitude is, look, I'm not judging you. I'm not making you feel bad, but I will not compromise my values. Right? I'm not. And, and here, here's, here's the real beauty of it. This is what it really is. I'm not judging you. I'm not against you, but I will not compromise my beautiful love story. Not going to happen. I will suffer, and you just keep, and then you're going to encounter resistance. So you have the internal resistance between you and your mate, and your internal resistance of, of, of not hooking up and having sex and all that kind of stuff. Then you have the external resistance of what Satan is actually doing in culture, and they're, they're, they're actually, Satan's actually just trying to cause culture to say, you're an idiot for waiting. That love story sucks. You need to go and you need to get your validation. But if you're going to be a part of a revolution, you have to actually take a stand, right? You have to, and it's a, it needs to be a beautiful meaningful stand that culture is going that stupid but a small group of people are actually saying no i'm in because this is where the really beautiful story is hopefully this audio will work i just want you to hear a bit of this speech there's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the south i don't know if you've heard it it has become the theme song we shall overcome we shall overcome deep in my heart i do believe we shall overcome. No, oh, I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, oh, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us before the victory is won. Some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death, then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names and dismissed as rabble-rousers and agitators, but we shall overcome. And I'll tell you why. 
we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And with this faith, we will go out and adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. And we will be able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. And this will be a great America. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great chap meeting in the corner. That's awesome. So don't we want to be a part of an incredible revolution? Don't we want to be a part of an incredible revolution that's causing great love stories to be told in this world? If we do, we have to stand together, we have to face resistance, and we have to suffer. And if we suffer and face resistance, our stories will be more and more and more beautiful. And the world will look at us and they'll say, you know what? Our love stories really suck. Their love stories are awesome. You, you can't preach a sermon better than a great marriage. You can't. People long for it. They see it and they just go... And your great marriage starts now. You can't eat a gallon of ice cream every night and run a marathon. You just have to... You can. Somebody said you can't. <laughs> you, we have to train for this, right? And we are a part of a revolution. It's Jesus. And He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You feel poor in spirit? You feel lonely? Blessed are you. Great thing is coming. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. The opposite of meek is the womanizer who can have any woman, right? Don't you want to be kind of like him, guys, sometimes? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You feel like it's never going to happen for you. Your love story is not going to happen. Or your marriage is so painful. Blessed are those who mourn. But don't give in to temptation. They keep crossing the bridge. They keep facing the resistance. Blessed are they. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be, have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is, not a, this is not a movement of judgment. It's a movement of mercy. Your love story is so lonely and so hard. Please join us. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the clean of heart, the pure of heart, who want for the good things. Don't get caught up in the poor. And we'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow, guys. Don't get caught up in the need for validation and to find out that you're the powerful enough woman to seduce a man. Blessed are the clean of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. A bad love story, it is, there's no more tension in the world than in a bad love story. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Blessed are they that suffer persecution. You're a virgin. You're an idiot. You're not knocking down girls. Why didn't you sleep with her? Blessed are those that suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every beautiful love story faces resistance. Every beautiful love story faces resistance and so will yours. Listen, if you don't tell your love story, a love story will be told for you. You will live a love story. You will either control it and share agency with God and tell it and make it very beautiful, or one will be told to you and it's not going to be any good. We face resistance. This is the, the prologue to Romeo and Juliet. Two households both alike in dignity and fair Verona where we lay our scene from ancient grudge break to new mutiny where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. And then we get to the from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventures piteous overthrows do with their, their death bury their parents' strife, which but their children's end could not remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. Blah, blah, blah. What Shakespeare is talking about here is two people who want to get together uh, but can't because of the conflict um, of their two families that separates them. What's really beautiful about this play, and I'll get into this a little bit tomorrow, is Shakespeare wrote this uh, in about, at about 1540, if I'm not mistaken, when uh, Montagues and Capulets represented Catholics and Protestants, and this whole play is the story of Christian conversion. Because Juliet becomes Jesus, and Romeo submits to her and says to Jesus, will you please baptize me and change my name and make me new? And the beautiful story here is between Jesus and the church. We'll get into that a little bit tomorrow. But we will face conflict, and it will look like this. You leave this room and you try to tell a beautiful love story with your life and I guarantee you this dude is coming after you. <laughs> and he's coming after you. He's going to look like porn. That guy, who, ladies, who you've really had your eye on for a long time, who's never paid any attention to you, tomorrow is your day. It really is. And he's a complete loser and your eggs are going to go, you, we just heard Don say. <laughs> right? You will face it. You will be tested, and you got to defeat that dude. Uh, I, I attended a, um, a a screenwriting class years ago by a guy named Robert McKee, and I'm gonna I'm gonna close with this because we're out of time. Maybe we'll be able to finish some of this tomorrow. Um, Robert McKee is an atheist. He's the screenwriting storytelling guru. Dozens of Academy Award winners have studied under Robert McKee. He was at USC. I think he was at UCLA. Now you pay hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars just to hear Robert McKee speak. He, he is the guy that screenwriters go to in order to figure out how to tell good stories. I went to uh, hear him speak and it was 36 hours of lectures. 36 hours. But McKee also says, our movies are getting worse. Our stories are getting worse. And as an atheist... Do you know why McKee says people are walking out of movies and our movies aren't as good? I think it's the same reason people are checking out on their lives and our lives are not as fulfilling. I want to close with this benediction. This is what Robert McKee says in his book. An atheist. The final cause of the decline of story runs very deep. Values. The positive-negative charges of life are at the soul of our art. The writer shapes story and life 
around a perception of what's worth living for and what's worth dying for, what is foolish to pursue, the meaning of justice, truth, the essential values. In decades past, writer and society more or less agreed on these questions, but more and more, ours has become an age of moral and ethical cynicism, relativism, and subjectivism, a great confusion of values. As the family disintegrates and sexual antagonisms rise, who, for example, feels he can even understand the nature of love? And how, if you do have a conviction, do you express it to an ever more skeptical audience? This erosion of values has brought with it a corresponding erosion of story. An atheist is saying, when we lose our morality, we lose our stories. I will tell you, when you lose your boundaries, when you lose that clear idea of what you want in life, and when you will not face the conflict or do the suffering, your stories will get boring and awful and mundane and painful. But that is not God's fault. God made a beautiful life. It's our fault for not taking the pen and saying, I'm going to write a great one. I'm going to write a great love story. May your love stories shine and dazzle the world. Thanks so much. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.